Now, friends, we've come to a new chapter here in Philippians, the second chapter. We saw in chapter 1 that we have the philosophy of Christian living. That was summed up in one word, or one verse, I should say, for me to live Christ, to die gain. And Christ was the very center of this man's life. And that was Paul, of course. Now we're going to see that he gives here in chapter 2 the pattern for Christian living. Now the pattern for Christian living is the mind of Christ, as we shall see. Now that's not by imitation. I hear so much today about following Jesus. I sometimes would like to ask some folk, especially when their lives are such as they are, who talk about their following Jesus. Now, what do you really mean by it? Are you trying to imitate him? Well, may I say to you, when Paul says here that Christ is the pattern of Christian living, he's not talking about imitation. He's talking here about impartation. That is, the mind of Christ should be in us, and it can only be there by the power of the Spirit of God. I've learned long time ago that when Vernon McGee does it, it's not only not done well, but it's done wrong, always. Because my mind, and I am accused sometime of being rather strong-willed and that I have a tendency to move ahead, my wife says I do that. But you know, I do that, but I always recognize that when I've done that and I stump my toe, I then say, Lord, I'm ready now for you to take over. And it's been wonderful to see how the Lord does take over. We have returned from our Hawaiian conference, and I do not believe that I ever saw the Spirit of God move in such a wonderful way as he did, in a way that we did not even anticipate at all. And all we had to do was, I just learned to, just sit back and watch the Spirit of God move. And that doesn't mean that you sit back and twiddle your thumbs. It means that you have to carry on the program that God's given you to carry on. Now, as we come to this chapter, we find in the first four verses, we're going to talk about others. Now, that's important, and I'll tell you why. Because we are coming to what is considered one of the great, theological statements made in Scripture. It has to do with the person of Christ. And out of that theological statement has come one of the most controversial issues that has come down through the centuries. In fact, it is the thing that probably divided Europe. It had more to do with it than anything else. And it had to do with the person of Christ. And the theory that was promoted was the kenosis theory. That is, that Christ emptied himself of his deity. And this passage will make it clear that he didn't empty himself of his deity. Now, before we get in that controversial issue, let's notice that there is the practical side. And as we've said before, this epistle is the practical epistle. He says here, "...if there..." Be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, 
if any bowels and mercies. Now, this if here is not the if of condition. It's not a conditional clause that Paul has given us, but it is the if of argument, the argumentative if. You see, Paul is a logical thinker, as we said in Romans. I think it was a great Frenchman who made the statement, if you do not find Paul logical, you're not reading him aright. Well, anywhere you read Paul, he'll be logical. And Paul is argumentative, and this is a statement like that. So instead of saying, if there therefore be any consolation in Christ, there is... What Paul is really saying is, since there is consolation in Christ, because of that, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, and since there is the fellowship of the Spirit. Now, because of these, the consolation and the comfort and the fellowship, now this is what he says here, and if any... Bowels and mercies. Now, bowels means tenderness. It's down, you know, internally that you and I live and move and have our being as we've indicated before. And this is not a vulgar statement, a crude statement, but actually it is true to life today. If you're listening today and you're a man, when you fell in love with your wife, where did it all take place? Up in your head? I doubt whether it did. You didn't just sit down and get some figures and even figure out whether you could support her or not. You weren't logical about that as far as the mental side is concerned. You just blurted out one night, I love you and I want you to marry me. Where'd that come from? Down internally. It's below the neck where we live and move and have our being. Very little happens upstairs, by the way. And very few of us live upstairs. Many of us haven't been in the attic of the house we live in, and many of us don't get in the attic of our mind very often either. And so here, it's a wonderful word. Since there's tenderness and mercies in Christ. Oh, these are wonderful things. Now he says, fulfill ye my joy. That is, Paul says, I'm having a good time, and I'm rejoicing, though he's in prison, but he says, I'd rejoice more if I knew that the gospel was working in your life, that ye be, now notice what he says, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, you see, there'd been a little difficult, as we saw before in the Philippian church. Not much, but a little. Paul says, I want you to be of one mind. Now, he's not asking them to be carbon copies. And that is a grave danger today in the church. There are generally two groups of people in the church, in most churches. One who for the preacher knows who against the preacher. And they generally follow a sort of a carbon copy. It's not that they think for themselves, but the ones that are one mind are generally of one mind because they're carbon copy of some leader or some group. And the same thing is true regardless of which side they're on. To be of one mind here is to let the mind of Christ be in you. And that always makes for differences 
in expressions, difference in gifts, as we've seen in Corinthians, difference in services, and actually difference in certain doctrines. We can disagree today over certain doctrines. I've been criticized severely because I have been in and spoken to Roman Catholic priests, and I've been in where the nuns are, and I speak in Pentecostal churches, and people say, well, you criticize that. Sure, I disagree with them a great deal, but that doesn't mean that I have to have a carbon copy of their mind. And believe me, they ought not to have a carbon copy of mine. One's enough, and we don't need carbon copies about. And so Paul is talking here about the mind of Christ, and that will express itself in different ways. But it doesn't mean we're going to try to beat each other's brains out, because that's the way some of us fundamentalists act. Now he says, "...let nothing be done through strife or vain glory." Now you remember he has had that before us again. He said that there was some preaching Christ of envy and of strife. And I would say that that is probably the thing that's back of most of the differences that are not doctrinal differences. It's due to strife. Some people just naturally cause trouble. They are born for trouble. I mentioned the fact that we have such a wonderful group that went on a Hawaiian tour. They're the most wonderful people I ever met. We only had two on that tour caused any trouble whatsoever. They just didn't have the same mind, I'll tell you that. But the others did. And yet, everyone was different. There were people there from the south, from the north, from the islands of the sea, from Canada. They were from everywhere. And they didn't even talk alike, but there was one mind. It was a wonderful experience. Now he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And friends, when you're doing something through strife in the church, you just well not do it. It'd be better if you didn't. And if you're doing it because you expect to be recognized, I think one of the worst things that happens today in church meetings, and one of the reasons that I don't go to very many meetings, I mean of organizations. I'm not an organizational man to begin with, but I just do not like to go to an organizational meeting where we're going to thank Miss So-and-so because she brought a bouquet of petunias. And we're going to thank Mr. So-and-so because he brought in an extra chair. My gracious alive, do why do Christians have to be recognized today and commended? And you don't dare leave anybody out, because if you do, you're absolutely in trouble. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, that you're trying to make a name for yourself. But notice this, "...but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves." Now, I think Euodius and Syntyche, that we'll get to in the fourth chapter, wouldn't have had any trouble if they had done things in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, they had had some sort of misunderstanding because each felt like that she was being put down by the other, and they just didn't want to be put down. Well, let each esteem another better than themselves. You know, we'd never have any trouble on the board. We'd never have any trouble in the choir if we had this policy. 
if one soloist said to another, oh, you don't ask me to sing? Ask Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so to sing. They have so much better voice than I have. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's, wonder why they didn't call on me. I've got a better voice than so-and-so. And why wasn't I asked to serve on a board? Or why wasn't I asked to be put on a committee? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That would solve a great many of the problems. And I think most of the problems in the church would be solved if we adopted that. You know, somebody has said that the choir is the war department of the church. And a friend of mine says that when the Lord cast the devil out of heaven, he fell in the choir law. And I sometimes think that's where he landed. And we can have trouble today in the church because this is not followed. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, listen to this. Look not every man on his own things. Oh, that's the danger of most of us today. I have been absolutely overwhelmed. I wasn't able to read the letter today. But I have a letter here from another broadcaster. Actually, a gift was enclosed for this broadcast. Now, on the same station, I am in the state of Florida. And it said, what a blessing your broadcast is. And I said, I don't know anything about the broadcast, but I know something about that person. They're a pretty big Christian, by the way. Let each esteem other better than themselves. How wonderful that is. Doesn't that sort of get down under your skin, my friend? I'm afraid it does, this poor preacher. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, listen to this. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And the key, I believe, to this entire passage here through verse 4 is that word others others. And it's the Christian faith, my friend, that first made that word important in any language. Others. 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 Not ourselves, but others. My friend, that is the mind of Christ. Now, he's going to tell you about the mind of Christ. He says, verse 5 and we come here, the mind of Christ. What is the one thing that characterized it? Humility. Humbleness was the thing that characterized the mind of Christ. Humility. Will you notice this? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the mind of Christ that's going to be put before us. And this is the thing, by the way, that we were told to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. Paul said that back in Ephesians, in the fourth chapter. And how is that? With all lowliness and meekness. And that's the mind of Christ. You and I can't be humble. We can't be meek. We're not made that way. We want to stand on our two feet and have our little say. All of us are like that. Don't say you're not, because you are. We just don't want to be offended. We don't want to be ignored. We get a hang-up if we have been brought up in life where we've been tromped on all the time. 
I heard the other day about a boy of a very fine ministry he's become a hippie. Why? He had a brother that was a brilliant fellow ahead of him and constantly was thrown up to this boy what his brother did. What his brother was, well, he went the opposite direction, rebelling against it. That became his hang-up, you see. And that's natural. That's the way the natural man. Don't go to the boy and say, now, listen, son, you just ignore that. He's not going to ignore it. A man that's not born again is not even going to get in this territory, my friend, of others, of others. Now, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind? Humble, an humble mind. Now, we are going to see seven steps that our Lord took in humiliation. You have here seven steps downward, and then we have seven steps upward, exaltation of Christ. You have first then in humiliation the mind of Christ. Then we'll have the mind of God, and it is in the mind of God the Father to exalt Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to know what you can do that will put you in the will of God, I don't know where you're to go or anything like that, but I can tell you this. My friend, it is the purpose of God to exalt Jesus Christ. And I think that's the will of God for you and for me today, is to exalt him wherever we are and however we are. And so we have here the humiliation of Christ and the seven steps down that he took. And this is a tremendous step that we're going to see him take. Now, the first one. It says here, "...who being in the form of God..." thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, that is, I must confess, a rather stilted translation. And I think I can put that in some good old Americana. What he actually is saying here is just simply this, is that when he was there at the right hand of God the Father, and he was God, he didn't come down reluctantly. He wasn't afraid he'd lose that position. He hadn't gone to school to become God. He wasn't advanced from another position. He was God. And there's no danger of him losing that position. When he left heaven's glory, he did it with delight. There was nothing that caused him to hold back at all. He came with great joy to this earth. You and I today can't even conceive of what a big step it was from heaven's glory all the way down to this earth. Absolutely, it's beyond human comprehension to understand what our Lord really did for us. A friend of mine, we were standing the other day at the poly as you cross over from Honolulu proper to the windward side of the island, you go across what they call the poly. Well, it is really pretty high cliffs. I don't know how high they are. Several hundred feet, just a sheer drop-off. A friend of mine was saying, because we were standing there looking, there was a golf club down below, and he said, my, 
I'd like to go down there and play golf. And another friend standing there, he said, you know, he said, it's not far down there from here, but that first step is a long one. Well, that first step would be a long one, several hundred feet down. And I don't think you'd be able to play much golf. But our Lord came out of heaven's glory all the way down, as we shall see in these seven steps downward. Now, what it really means here that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, it wasn't something that he was hanging on to. There was no danger of him losing his place and position in the Godhead because of any lack on his part or the ability and ambition of a contender. He was God without any effort at all. And he didn't come down reluctantly like this. Oh, I I hate to leave heaven. Oh, I don't want to go down on that trip. Oh, that's something I don't want to do. It's not something, see, he held on to. He came down joyfully. And there was no danger of him losing his position or him not being God. He didn't say, and I want to be very careful now, I'm not being irreverent when I say this. He didn't whisper into the ear of God the Father and say, Now look, will you be sure and keep my place here right by the side of you and keep a sharp eye out for Gabriel? I think he's after my place. And while I'm gone for 33 years, he might be able to get my place. And therefore, I'm reluctant to go. My friend, he didn't come down like that. There was no danger of him losing anything. He joyfully, it was for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He came all the way down, and he wasn't holding on to it. It wasn't something forced upon him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And it was a gift. And a gift is not something that's forced. If it is, it's not a gift. And he came willingly. If he hadn't come willingly, it would not have been a sacrifice. You see it all. And therefore, he came joyfully to this earth. Now, in verse 7, the second step, "...but made himself of no reputation." Now, if you'll notice here, a better translation of that, the word here, and this is where the kenosis theory comes from, is the word kenao, and it means he emptied himself. Now, there's always been a question, what did he empty himself of? And there were those, some of the first heresies had to do that he emptied himself of his deity, that when he came down, the deity came on to him at his baptism and left him at the cross. Well, This makes it very clear here that he emptied himself of something, but he did not empty himself of his deity. He was 100% God when he was a little baby reclining in a helpless position on the bosom of Mary. He was then a little helpless baby. But at that moment, he could have spoken this universe out of existence. Why? Because he's God. And he was 100% God, not 99 and 44 100%, but 100%. There never was a moment when he was not God. When he came down yonder to Bethlehem, 
Now, we're told here that he emptied himself. Now, what did he empty himself of? And I'm convinced he emptied himself of something. Well, I think he emptied himself of the prerogatives of deity. Now, when he came down to Bethlehem at Christmas time, we make a great deal of the fact that there were the shepherds and the wise men. Of course, they didn't get there a couple years later, but that doesn't seem to bother the Christmas pageants that we have. And there was the angel, Gabriel, and there were the heavenly hosts. And my, we'd think that's just great. Well, friends, I must say, I disagree with that. He's God. Did you know that instead of a few angels, instead of a few shepherds being there, did you know the whole universe should have been there? Every created creature should have been there because they're going to all bow to him someday. They should have been there. Caesar should have been there. The whole Roman Empire should have been there. Religion should have been there. The temple in Jerusalem should have been empty that day, and they should have come down to Bethlehem because he was born there. But they didn't. And why didn't he force it? Well, he laid aside his prerogatives of deity. He didn't force anything. He was willing to go into that stable there. And we always make it in the Christmas pageants a pretty clean stable. Well, it wasn't. It was a dirty, filthy place. And somebody says, well, it was the same place that the people slept. Well, they were in the adjoining building, I'm sure. But the thing is, it was not very clean where all these animals were. And that's where he was born. And he went up there to Nazareth, a little old miserable town, and he was raised there. And he was a carpenter, unknown, unheard of. And yet, probably, more people have heard of him up to today than any other person except Abraham. He has been a world figure. And he was brought up in that little carpenter shop up there. And he laid aside his prerogatives of deity. He could have had the Shekinah glory with him all the time, but he didn't. They always paint him, you know, with a picture with a halo around his head. He didn't have a halo around his head. Judas, even the night he was arrested, had to come and kiss him so that the soldiers would know who he was. He didn't stand out like that from the others, my friend. This idea today that he went around with a halo and his head in the clouds and looking up all the time is a big mistake. He was a human being. He had taken upon himself that. But he was God manifest in the flesh. And he laid aside those prerogatives. Now, somebody says to me, can you be sure of that? I think I can. Now, when he had finished his ministry... And you remember he was gathered with his own that last night. And in that prayer, that last night, he prayed a very wonderful prayer. It is the Lord's Prayer. It's in John 17. Will you listen to him? One thing he said in that prayer was this. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee, from before the world was. Now, notice that. He says, I want the glory that I had. I want that now restored to me. Apparently, he laid aside his prerogatives of deity, the glory light 
and it broke out on several occasions, as you know, and certainly after his resurrection, it was there. But now, he says, as he's going to return to heaven, restore to me the glory that I had with thee. Obviously, he'd laid that aside, you see. So, he didn't lay aside his deity. He's God of very God, and he's man of very man. The oldest creed of the church says that. And my friend, that's the way it's been down through the ages, and the thinking of men today can't change that one whit. Who being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, the third step down. And he took upon him the form of a servant. Now, he came to this earth as a servant. He was a carpenter. I suppose that you lived in Nazareth in that day. You could have gone by and said to him, Jesus, I have some repair work to be done at my house. Doors coming off the hinges. I wonder if you'd come fix it. I think he would have said, I'll be right over. You see, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He could have been born in Caesar's palace. He was a king, but he never made that claim during those early years. He never made it till he rode into Jerusalem in the so-called triumphal entry. But up to that time, why, he took upon him the form of a servant. That's the way he came into this world. You talk about the working man today, the humble man, the little man. That's the way he came into this world. He came not only as a human being, but he came among the majority, where most of us are today, little people. And that's the way he came into this world. He took upon him the form of a servant. He left heaven's glory, and he was God, worshipped as God by the heavenly host. Now he leaves all of that and he comes to a Christ-rejecting world where they had him locked out, if you please, not even a place for him to be born. But God arranged a stable, and that was better than that public inn because all it would have been just one great room where each fellow put down his pallet. And that wouldn't have been a very nice place for Jesus to have been born before that leering crowd. And I think the dumb oxen were lots better than the dumb mob myself. And I still feel that stable became holy ground, although it was just a stable. And we find that he made this tremendous step downward, the prophets, said that there would be a root out of Jesse. Isaiah, you'll recall, said that. A root out of Jesse. And I often wondered as a young preacher, well, why didn't Isaiah say a root out of David? Well, I'll tell you why. The reason is that when Jesus was born, Mary, who was in the line of David, And Joseph, who was also in the Davidic line in another route, we find that these two were peasants. That's all they were, just humble peasants, unknown folk, living in that little miserable Gentile town called Nazareth. 
That's where Jesus was brought up. He took upon him the form of a servant, not the line of David. Oh, yes. But the interesting thing is, you see, David was anointed a king, but his father was not a king. He was a farmer in Bethlehem, raised sheep, you know. That's what he was. Nothing wrong in that other than he was just not a king. So a root now comes out of Jesse. The line is dropped back to the place of the peasant. And our Lord came as a servant. He took an humble place, you see. Now, notice the fourth step downward. He was made in the likeness of man. Now, friends, that for years did not impress me at all. Because very candidly, I'm a man, and I like being a man. I think there's a dignity about being a human being that's quite wonderful. To be in the likeness of a man. And how can that be humbling? Well, it's very difficult for me today to make it clear to you that the one who's Lord of this universe and the creator of this universe and the one who created man, may I say to you, it was humbling for him to take upon himself the form of a man, to be made in the likeness of man. He was a man down here. He came down not only to redeem mankind, but to reveal God to mankind. How important that was, because how do we know about God? We don't know a thing unless what he tells us. And when he came down to this earth and became a man, we found out a whole lot about God. And that, the only way you can know God is through Jesus Christ, who is God. But he became a man, like the little girl. She went upstairs. Her mother told her to go upstairs and go to bed. And she went upstairs and went to bed and turned out the light. And she began to cry and whimper. And the mother said, what's the matter? She says, I want somebody to come up here and be with me. I don't want to be by myself. And the mother said, God's up there with you. And for a moment, it was quiet. And then she said, but mama, I want somebody with a face. Well, may I say to you, Jesus Christ is God with a face. And he said this concerning himself. He said, I am the water of life. I'm the bread of life. Well, I know about bread, and I know about water, and I know about him now. He says, I'm the door. <laughs> he not only fixed doors, he was the door. And I know about doors. I've got doors in my house. You know about doors. He says, I'm the true vine. I know a whole lot about vines out here in California. And I know something else. He says, I am the life, and I'm the way. My, these words, they tell us a great deal about him and about who he is. He came to reveal God. But notice what it says here. He took upon himself the likeness of man. Now, I say it again, I like being a man. And I can't see that that's being humbling to become a man. It was for him to leave heaven's glory and become a man. Let me give you a very homely illustration that I trust might be helpful in understanding this. And it's a rather ridiculous one, too, but it'll illustrate what we're after. Here in California, the ants are not killed off during the winter time. 
fact of the matter is, it doesn't get that cold. And they may not move about as they did before, but they're still with us. And I didn't know that when we first came to California. It was November. I thought we were through with ants. There wouldn't be any about. And I got up one morning, went into the kitchen. Well, they had opened up one of the first freeways in Southern California to the Sugar Bowl. They were coming down on one side and going back on the other. And I guess they would have taken off all of the sugar. We'd let them alone. But I got busy and got rid of those ants. And then I found out that they not only made that freeway to the sugar bowl, they made it to the sink because they like water to drink too. And my friend, I want to tell you, I had ant trouble, so I began to find out. Well, I'll tell you what we do. I have a very wonderful friend here in Southern California who's in the business killing bugs. He's a bug exterminator. And about once or twice a year, he comes to my place and he sprays all over the place. And I haven't seen an ant around my place in years. Now, I have a notion that down in the ant world that they've had several protest meetings about me. They say, that fellow lives up in that house. He just doesn't like us. And we don't like the way he does. He's infringing on our liberty. He's destroying us. And they may be marching up and down with a bunch of placards in front of my place right now. I don't know. I haven't noticed, but they may be. And I'm sure they don't have very much use for me because I've really killed them all. No question about that. Now, may I say to you, I really don't hate ants. That's not my hang-up. That's not my problem at all. I just soon let ants live. Now, if I had some way of communicating with those ants and would be able to say to them, Look, ants, you stay outside of the house. Just let the sugar bowl alone, stay away from the sink, and I'll put sugar outside for you and water outside. I'd go that far. I'd be willing to do that for them because I don't hate ants, really. But they don't know that. Now, suppose I could get the message to them. How would I do it? Well... Suppose that I could go down and become an ant, become one of them, and communicate to them in ant language and get the word through to them. Now, if I could, I want you to know this, I wouldn't. You know why? Because I know some folk today that if I became an ant, they'd step on me, and I'm not going to become an ant, not going to take that chance. But suppose I could go down there and become an ant and communicate. My friend, that to me would be humbling. May I say to you that for me to go down and become an ant is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he left heaven's glory and came down to this earth and became a man. It was humbling for him to become a man. And he was made in the likeness of man. How tremendous that is. He became one of us. And it was humbling for him to do that. Now, there's another step here, and that is the fifth step. And it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now, the fact of the matter is, he wasn't humbled by someone else. Now, many of us, I'm sure, have been humiliated by someone else saying or doing something. But he wasn't humbled like that. He humbled himself. That's the most difficult thing in the world to do. 
One of the finest things I ever heard about John Wesley was this. One time he was going to cross a stream, just a brook, and there was a narrow board across. And as he went over, he met a liberal preacher that day, and there were in that day, of course. And this liberal preacher swelled up, and he says, I never give way to a fool. John Wesley looked at him for a moment and smiled and began to back off. And John Wesley said, I always do. <laughs> May I say to you, it's difficult to take that humble place. But that's always made me think a great deal of John Wesley. It's difficult to humble ourselves. Well, our Lord did that. And he became obedient unto death and the death of the cross. And our Lord came as a servant. He took an humble place, you see. Now, when it says he humbled himself, it means that someone else did not humble him. Now, many of us have been humble, I'm sure, by someone else doing it for us. Now, I won't give names or places, but I was speaking quite a few years ago at a certain summer conference ground. And the custom in that day was for all the speakers in any given week would all sit on the platform every night for the evening service, regardless who was preaching. It was sort of a game like, I'll listen to you if you'll listen to me. And we would march on in a rather dignified and orderly manner. It was ritualistic. Well, in this auditorium, there had been a rain that afternoon. And believe me, it had poured down rain. And it had come in on the platform at certain places. And we had an Englishman on the program. He was a very gifted speaker, but very dignified. He couldn't get over the fact that I wore a sports shirt. Even at night, that to him was the unpardonable sin. He wore a white shirt collar and tie, in fact, a frock-tail coat at night. And he was really dignified. And so he went in that night right ahead of me. And there was this water that had come from the rain was there on the platform. Made it rather slippery. He went in in a very dignified way, and he hit that slick place there, his feet went out from under him, and he sat down with, oh, quite a bump. And you couldn't help but laugh. The man had broken his neck. I guess we would all laughed at him. And the audience roared. He got up. I've never seen anyone as humiliated as he was. In fact, I was laughing, so I had to leave the platform. I went to the back, and he came back because he was so humiliated. I've never seen a man humbled as that man. And the next night when we started in, I said to him, you know, it'd be nice if we could have a repeat performance of what you did last night. And he turned on me and says, wasn't that humiliating? Well, it certainly was. But you see, he didn't humble himself. He was humiliated. Now, many of us have been humiliated, but our Lord humbled himself. And that's something altogether different, you see. Then we are told here, became obedient unto death. Now, death is a very humiliating sort of thing. Actually, it's not natural. 
I hear people say sometimes at a funeral, my, doesn't he look natural? And I have to bite my lip because it's generally said by some well-meaning friend who wants to comfort the loved ones. I don't know why that should comfort them that uncle so-and-so, our grandfather, looks natural and dead. To tell the truth, I'd have to bite my lip to keep from saying, no, they don't look natural. Death is not natural. God didn't create man to die. Man dies because of sin, because of his transgression. And death came by the transgression of one man, and that one man was Adam. And death is humiliating. Now, when the Lord Jesus came to this earth, He's a little different than the rest of us. I don't know about you, but I suspect that you're like I am. I came to live, not to die. I honestly don't want to die. I want to live. And I've asked the Lord to let me live and finish this five-year program. When I first discovered, the doctor first discovered I had cancer, I was in the midst of a -a two-and-a-half-year program And I asked everybody to pray that I finish the two-and-a-half-year program, and at that time, didn't look like I would. Well, the Lord let me finish it, and I immediately came up with a five-year program. And a friend of mine up in the San Francisco Bay Area that kids me a great deal, he said to me, he said, I know what you're going to do. The minute you finish that five-year program, if the Lord lets you finish it, you're going to come up with a ten-year program. You want to know something? I'd like to. I'm not going to. We'll have the five-year program again. But the interesting thing is that, very candidly, (laughs) I don't want to die. When I hear people say, oh, they want to die and go and be with the Lord. Well, that's far better. But Paul says that's the ultimate. But he says to remain here is far better. (laughs) I like that. I feel that there's a work to be done and that there's something for us to do today as we remain here on this earth. And I want to stay, but death is something. I don't want to die. Now, the Lord Jesus came to this earth to die. He didn't have to die, but he came and gave himself willingly. He became obedient unto death. He didn't have to. I have to die. don't want to. He didn't have to die, but he wanted to. Why? in order that he might save me and save you and you and all of you, if you trust him. And then the seventh and last thing, the death of the cross. Now, that's the same as we would say the gas chamber, the hangman's noose, or the electric chair, whatever it might be, the form of death. And I don't want to intrude something else here, but the Word of God does teach capital punishment. And this book has been probably the greatest civilizing instrument the world has ever had. And when anyone makes the statement that capital punishment is uncivilized, they apparently do not know what is the very foundation of civilization. That happened to be the Word of God. And my friend, if we don't put capital punishment back in we're going to find out that many of us won't dare go out of our homes of an evening. It won't be safe anymore to walk the streets maybe in broad daylight. And that's true in some places 
may I say to you, we're not as civilized as we think we are. Now, God didn't give capital punishment because it's uncivilized. He gave capital punishment because man is a sinner, and man is totally depraved. That's his condition, and doesn't make any difference who he is. And the only deliverance from a moral breakdown is revival. Unless revival comes, of course, we're apparently gone. Now, the Lord Jesus came down and took the death of the cross, the lowest thing that he could take. He came from the highest glory to the lowest place of humiliation. And why did he do it? Let's go back to our word. Others. Others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He left all of the glory of heaven, and he came down to this earth, became a man for others, for you and you and for me. Thank God for that. That's the mind of Christ. Now the mind of God is to glorify Christ. Beginning at verse 9, we have seven steps upward. Now we've had seven steps downward. We are going to have seven steps upward. Now will you notice, the mind of God, therefore, is the exaltation of Christ. And these are the seven steps. Beginning here with verse 9, "...wherefore God also hath highly exalted him." That is the supreme purpose of God the Father in this universe, that Jesus Christ be glorified in the universe that he created, and that he be glorified on the earth where man dwells, where man rebelled against God. And the thing that makes this little earth significant and important happens to be the death of Christ, nothing else. When I hear an astronomer say, we are a little speck in space, and if this little universe we lived on was blotted out, wouldn't make any difference. It just wouldn't make any difference. And it wouldn't. It's absolutely true. Someone has said that though on this universe, that man is a disease on the epidermis, of a minor planet. That's what we are. <laughs> but my friend, the thing that has lent dignity to man and has caused him to look up into the heavens and sing the doxology is the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for us. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Now, the second step and given him a name which is above every name. And next time you take his name in vain, think of that. God intends that name that you drag in the mud, that you use in vain. Pilate that stepped off of one of these planes where the bomb exploded. Almost a miracle that he was able to bring that plane down. He said he just stood over at the side and said, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how he said it. He could have said it as profanity. God have mercy on him if he did it that way. Or he could have made that a prayer. And that name of Jesus Christ is to be exalted 
above every name. No, I don't care. You can take the great men of the world. You can take the angels of glory. There's going to be a name above every name, and that's the name of Jesus. Now, will you notice the third thing that is said here? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And that includes everything. That's the third. The fourth of things in heaven, and fifth, things in earth, and sixth, things under the earth. Now, there have been some that have used this clause here to mean that all will be reconciled to God someday, even hell. But may I say to you, that's not the teaching of the Word of God. Every place will have to recognize who Jesus Christ is, even in hell. They're going to have to recognize that. And by the way, I think that'll contribute partly to their punishment. Imagine those that have taken his name in vain, hated him, disowned him, actually spit upon him down here, and having to acknowledge his lordship. But they're not reconciled to God at all, because you find in the epistle to the Colossians that He made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself. All things, then, that means under the earth. Oh, no. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, but not under the earth. No, hell is not reconciled to him. But hell will have to recognize who he is. God has determined that. Even the Christ rejecters will have to stand before him someday and recognize who he is. That is the important and the tremendous thing. Now, will you notice here, every knee shall bow therefore to him. Then we're told in verse 11 here, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that doesn't mean they confess him as Savior. You confess him as Savior here, but you will have to confess him as Lord there. That's quite interesting. Even in hell, they have to recognize the Lordship of Jesus. And may I say to you, and I say it very carefully, we ought to be very careful about calling him our Lord if he's not our Lord. You remember he made this statement that there are going to be many in that day that are going to say, Lord, Lord. (laughs) They call him Lord. And they did actually miracles in his name. He's going to say, I didn't even know you. (laughs) My friend, you better know him as you save you before you start running around and talking about the fact that he's your Lord. Make sure he's your Savior. And then if he's your Savior, then you can bow to him and you can become obedient unto him. I don't even like to hear them sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. We sure have a friend in him, all right. But he says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Are you doing what he commands you? Then don't call him your friend. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Oh, my friend today, even in hell, they're going to have to bow and acknowledge who he is. But they don't claim him as their Savior. 
They spurned him and rejected him down here. Now we are in the second chapter of the epistle to the Philippians, verse 12. And we have seen the pattern here for Christian living. And that's given to us, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that mind is not a mind that you imitate. We'll never be like him by imitating. It's only by impartation. And that means the Spirit of God must do it. Because the thing that characterized the life of our Lord was humiliation. He humbled himself. And he came down to this earth. And he took our place. Now, you and I can't imitate him. But the Spirit of God can produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And one of the fruits is meekness. And that would be the mind of Christ. Now we're going to see the mind of Christ as it walked down Roman roads, as it lived in Roman homes and was in a Roman jail. We're going to see the mind of Paul. We're going to see the mind of Timothy. And we're going to see the mind of Epaphroditus, who was the pastor of the church in Philippi. And in that pagan heathen empire, here are three men that exhibited the mind of Christ. And they're just three of three million. There was every bit of that at this time. And by the time you get to 100 A.D., that had been multiplied several times over. Now, will you notice? Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And frankly, salvation here, I think, is used in a general sense that he's talking about working out their problems that they have in the church, working out their own Christian life. He's not there to help them, and he's not sure he's going to ever be there again. He's in a Roman prison. So Paul says to them here in a very wonderful way, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A little girl was in church with her mother when the preacher read this verse in the passage of Scripture. Here he was reading. And when he read this verse, the little girl said in a stage whisper to her mother, she says, Mama, you can't work out salvation unless it's first been worked in, can you? And that's a very good question. You can't work out a salvation unless it's first been worked in. And we find here that it is God, verse 13, it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, so that God works out that which he works in. If he has saved you, he saved you by faith. Faith plus nothing is salvation. We've emphasized that again and again on this program that you can't be saved by works. God's not accepting works for salvation at all. But after you're saved, now God will talk to you about works then. And the salvation that he works in by faith is a salvation that he'll work it out also. It was Calvin that put it like this, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. 
And James says, You show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, only God can see the heart. He knows what your true condition is, and he knows what my true condition is. He knows whether I have saving faith, whether you have saving faith. But you know, your neighbor can't see saving faith, but he can see the works of faith. Now, not works of law. James not even talking about that. He's talking about the works of faith. And saving faith, he's saying, will work itself out so your neighbor will get the impression that you're different, that you are a Christian. Now, you wouldn't have to wear a placard around. As we read a little note the other day, the statement was made, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a good question. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, Paul is talking now about that faith that's going to work itself out in the lives of the Philippians. Now he says here in verse 14, "...do all things without murmurings and disputings." Don't accept an office in the church or teach a Sunday school class if you have to grumble about doing it. That absolutely wrecks more Christian work today than anything else. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Be like a light. And the Lord Jesus said that you're the light of the world. You and I look up at night and we see stars. God looks down at this earth and it's spiritually dark and he sees stars. Those that are his, that are down here, that are light in the world. And he says now, holding forth the word of light. Not light, but light and life are related. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. In other words, Paul says, I rejoice when I hear that your faith is manifested in good works. Now we have here in verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, here is one of the most wonderful verses that I think that you'll find in the entire Word of God. Here is a lovely verse of what the Christian life really should be. What he's referring to here is an offering that was back in the Old Testament. It's one of the earliest offerings. The burnt offering and the drink offering were the first offerings that you find mentioned. Over in Genesis 35, verse 14, we find here that when Jacob came back to Bethel, this is what he did. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. Now, that drink offering was an offering always poured out and generally poured out on another offering so that when you get over to the giving of the offerings, 
in the first part of Leviticus, the drink offering is not even mentioned. There's no mention of it at all. But you will find later on in Leviticus that there is a mention of the drink offering. And it was an offering that another offering was made, and the drink offering was poured on it. Let me just give one reference. That's over in Leviticus 23:13, And the meal offering thereof shall be two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink offering thereof shall be of wine the fourth part of a hen. Now, that drink offering, you see, was poured upon that red-hot offering, the meal offering there. And what would happen to a drink offering? It went up in steam. That's exactly what happened to it. The drink offering was never used in the sense of being consumed. Apparently never was. It was always poured out. And when it was poured out on another offering like this, it just went up in steam. Now, the picture here, I think, is tremendous. Paul is saying here, now listen to him carefully, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul says, the Lord Jesus made the supreme sacrifice, and he saved you. And I want your life to manifest the fact that you are serving a crucified but a risen and glorified and coming saved. I want that to be demonstrated. Now, Paul says, for me, I just want my life to be a drink offering, just poured out. Poured out just to go up and steam, friends, to be so consumed and obscured that all is seen is Jesus Christ. That's all. Oh, sometimes you hear the prayer today, hide the preacher back of the pulpit. And I used to think that would be a pretty good thing to do, is to hide him back there if you could. But the thing is that that's not quite it. Don't hide him back in the pulpit. But may he so give out the Word of God that somebody will see Jesus Christ. May his life be just a drink offering. Paul walked in humility. You see, he had the mind of Christ. How wonderful. And how gloriously wonderful it is. Now Paul can say, for the same cause also, do ye joy and rejoice with me. He says, if that takes place, and you, uh, your life commends the gospel, my life is just poured out as a drink offering. Well, he says, we'll all just rejoice over this. Oh, today we're rejoicing over the wrong thing. We need to rejoice over the fact that Jesus died for us and that we can serve him. And when we hear of someone that God's using, a wonderful church where people are being saved and they're being built up in the faith, we ought to just rejoice. If we're walking in humility, we'll rejoice. And we'll rejoice at the success of others. Oh, this strife, vain glory. Paul talks about that here. That's what was hurting the cause of Christ in Paul's day, and still hurts the cause of Christ. But to have your life where the mind of Christ is revealed, oh, that brings 
joy and brings glory to God. Now, will you notice we have here now the mind of Timothy. And if you look here at the mind of Timothy, well, he had a mind that was very wonderful also. Now, will you notice the mind of Timothy is like-minded with Paul. Listen to him here. Verse 19 now through verse 24. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, he says, I'm going to send my spiritual son to you, Timothy. I have great confidence in him. Listen to him. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, or who will truly care for your state. Now, this is a marvelous word, this I soup soup home, like-minded. I have no man like-minded. You see, Timothy was like-minded with Paul. And what kind of mind did Paul have? Well, in humility. He had the mind of Christ. Now, Timothy is like-minded with Paul. And you see, when two men have the mind of Christ, they're going to be together. You don't have to have a national council of churches and a world council of churches to get people together. In fact, you don't need any organization to get them together. If they both have the mind of Christ, they're together. (laughs) They're together, my friend. And this man, Timothy, Paul called him his son, his spiritual son. He led him to the Lord, and he'd been faithful to him. And sometimes you hear of one of your converts that has turned against you. It's like a child turning against you. And Paul had that happen to him also. But Timothy was faithful to him. And he says, I'm sending him because I can trust him. Wonderful today to have men like-minded with Christ, then they can work together. And that's the only way, by the way, they can work together. Now, listen to Paul. Somebody's going to say, Now, McGee, why do you always call attention to the negative side? I'll tell you why. Because Paul does. I just anticipated him a little here. Listen to him. Verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. They were seeking their own man. There were so many Christians that they were tempting to make a name for themselves. They were tempting to do something for their own glory. And as a result, they were willing to put Paul down and put him aside. And how do you respect others that are standing for the Word of God? When I hear some man of God today being criticized, I recognize that somewhere in there, I may not be able to detect just exactly what it is, but somewhere in there, there's strife and vain glory. The mind of Christ just wouldn't let you do that sort of thing. And Paul says here, I can't trust these other men. They all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ, but ye know the proof of him. And this boy Timothy proved himself, but ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? My friend, how wonderful it is when we really have the mind of Christ. We're together. You and I are together. 
May I say to you, friends, we're together if we have the mind of Christ. Talk about togetherness. You can't have it any better than that when someone has the mind of Christ and you have the mind of Christ. You're together. You're together whether you're a thousand miles apart. You're together. Nothing will bring you together like that. And you know, that's the reason that when a young man meets a young woman and they're both Christians and fall in love with each other, you know, they have a togetherness that you can't get in just a sexual marriage, friend. All you got is something physical. And you can buy that today on any corner. But when you have the same mind, the man and the woman, they're together. You can't have it any better than that. There's no human ceremony that can bring you together any more than that. This is a glorious, wonderful thing. Now, Paul goes on to say, "...him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me." Paul says, I want him to be able to bring to you the report of what's going to happen to me here in prison. And I want Timothy to be the one to bring the message to you. But Paul goes on now to say something else here. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Paul had hoped that he'd be released from prison. Now, tradition says that he was, and that he was out for a brief time until Nero reached out and pulled in Christians. And naturally, Paul the leader was pulled in and executed. Now we come to the mind of Epaphroditus. And this man has the word of Christ. And he's like-minded with Paul and Timothy. He has the mind of Christ. And they're all together, brethren in the Lord, serving the Lord. Now, will you notice this? He says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and a fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants, Epaphroditus. Who is he? Well, he was the pastor of the church up in Philippi. He's my brother. Epaphroditus wasn't jealous of this man, Paul. Paul had founded the church had a great ministry there. And Epaphroditus is not jealous of him at all. And Paul loves Epaphroditus because he has the mind of Christ and he can trust him. And he's my brother. He's my companion in labor. And he's my fellow soldier. He fights with me. He doesn't stick a knife in my back when I'm away. He doesn't go with my enemies. He's my fellow soldier. He stands with me, shoulder to shoulder, standing for the faith. But your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Now, listen to this. For he longed after you all, and he was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. Paul always has a good word to say for a preacher like this. And it's nice to see that. Paul brings this man, puts him right with him as his brother, his companion. And he tells the church over there, he says, he longed after you. He was sick, almost sick, nigh unto death. Now, Paul was always saying something complimentary 
of the local pastor. That is, if it could be said, Paul was not a hypocrite in this, and he didn't go around backslapping. But when a man was standing for God, Paul stood with him, of course. And we find here that he identifies himself with Epaphroditus. He calls him my brother, my companion, my fellow soldier. Now, will you notice that again? Paul says here, "...for he longed after you all, and he was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick." This is almost humorous here. You see, this man, Epaphroditus, he got sick. And word was sent back to the church in Philippi that their own pastor was sick. And he longed for them. Chances are he was homesick, too. And when he heard that the church back there was mourning for him because he was sick, he had a relapse because it hurt him that they were hurt because he was hurt. It's a sort of a vicious cycle here, but may I say it's a good vicious cycle that we have here, and it reveals the marvelous church that was at Philippi. And you can always... I think, judge a church by its relationship and attitude to a pastor who preaches and teaches the Word of God. When a deacon takes me aside and says to me, Dr. McGee, you know, we have a fine young man here today. He's preaching and teaching the Word of God. You know, I always feel good. And then when some deacon takes me aside and says, say, How do you get rid of a fellow like this? He's too opinionated. He's too dogmatic. He wants to run things. Now, I ask, is he preaching and teaching the Word of God? Oh, yes, he does that, but we've had that all along. Well, believe me, that's what had had no effect upon that man, that is for sure. And you can generally judge a church by its attitude and relationship to a man who preaches and teaches the Word of God. You can always do that. Just check in, and you'll find that's been true. And when a church begins to reject a man who preaches and teaches the Word of God, the church is doomed, my friend. And that is the death knell of many churches across this land today. You see, the devil has been very clever. He does not now attack the Word of God itself. I gave up a long time ago giving apologetic sermons. The Bible doesn't need defending. The Spirit of God take care of that. In fact, Paul wrote, you can do nothing against the truth. (laughs) You just let the enemy keep hammering away and let us keep hammering away, giving out the Word of God. And we don't need to defend the Bible. So the devil today doesn't make his attack on the Bible. He makes his attack upon the man who is preaching and teaching the Word of God. And you find that that's true across this land today. And I do think that I know pretty well the pulse of the conservative churches across this land, as I've been in many of them, and I think this is the real test. So this man, Epaphroditus, the pastor of the church in Philippi, my, what a wonderful relationship, and it speaks well of the church in Philippi. And we've already seen it was a wonderful church, and they love Paul also. Now, Paul goes on to say, he says, "...for indeed he was sick 
nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, at this point, I want to call attention to something, and I'm going to say something, maybe it's just a little mean, but I want to say it, because many of these people today that believe in the faith healers are friends of mine, and they love the Word of God, and I love it, and they are fine folk. They just don't always agree with me in everything. And, of course, it may be I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think so. But nevertheless, will you notice this? Paul here is in prison in Rome. He has a thorn in the flesh. The Lord Jesus wouldn't remove it. Just wouldn't remove it, but gave him grace to bear. Timothy has stomach trouble and You'd think Paul. Paul was a faith healer, by the way. He was an apostle. And those gifts ended with the apostles. And so Paul, the faith healer, what did he do with Timothy? Pray over him? Pour a little oil on him? No, he told him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Now, he's got a sick young preacher with him. And now Epaphroditus has been with him and almost died. And here you've got a faith healer and he's not working. <laughs> He didn't heal anybody, but he gives all the credit to God. It all came about in a very natural sort of way. They made the matter of prayer, and God heard and answered prayer. And you know why? Because at this late stage, even before the apostles disappeared from the scene, the emphasis is beginning to move back to the great physician. You see, what we're talking about in this epistle is this. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, friends, if I turn out to be a faith healer, I'm somebody. <laughs> I'm different. Oh, I'm great. But you want to know something? I'm not. Not at all. The Lord Jesus is the great physician. When I first had cancer, oh, I got all number of letters. Go see so-and-so. Go see so-and-so. No, I didn't go see anybody, friends, except a very fine cancer specialist here in Southern California. And then I went to the great physician, and I had an appointment with him, and I told him I wanted to live, turned my case over to him. And you know, he gets the credit. There's not a faith healer on top side of this earth that can take credit for what God has done for me. Therefore, may I say to you, even Paul the Apostle, toward the end of his ministry, is putting no emphasis on that whatsoever. And he's got a young hospital with him, by the way, just a bunch of sick preachers. And he did not exercise a gift that he had. Why? Well, because Paul is beginning to now shift the emphasis where it should be and must be upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend. Now, Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you. Notice verse 28. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice. Paul wanted them to rejoice, not sorrow, and that I may be the less sorrowful. I've been disturbed about the church in Philippi because it's been in mourning instead of rejoicing. Now he says, verse 29, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness 
and hold such in reputation. Believe me, the respect that should be shown, the one who is teaching the Word of God, or the one who has an office and a gift that God is using, that gift and that individual should be respected. Not that the individual should receive anything, but the fact that the emphasis today, friends, is on the person of Christ. And therefore, the emphasis moves to the Word of God, which reveals Christ. And the emphasis, therefore, today should be on the book, the Word of God. We have all kinds of meetings today, and I just don't go to them anymore. I was asked to speak at a convention. And they had all sorts of little meetings where they're going to discuss this problem, that problem, and the other problem. And psychology is one of the things. It's had its day, I think. And right now there is a moving of the Spirit of God upon the Word of God. And a great many people are finding today that psychology was, well, a pied piper that led a great many of the shallow saints off into a detour and a great many of them have followed that and followed other things. My friends, it's the Word of God that reveals Christ. And somebody says, McGee, you certainly are hipped on this. Well, somebody needs to be hipped on it, and I'm perfectly willing to be the one to be hipped on it today, that the emphasis must be upon the Word of God. And if we really believe that, and I take myself aside many times, And I say, oh, God, I believe it's your word. Help my unbelief. Help me to rest upon it. Why, I marvel today at some of the letters that we get. Absolutely, I marvel at the letters. I just don't believe God can use this broadcast like that. And you know why? Because I've got unbelief, and I don't believe God as I should believe him. And that is the problem I dare say with most of us, instead of running around to all of these little conventions and these little meetings where we try to solve problems by psychology and we talk about the drug problem and the hippie problem and the sex problem and the superstar problem and the youth problems and the senior citizen problem, my friend, the problem is that we just don't get back to the Word of God. Now, will you let me finish chapter 2 with verse 30? Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. The work of Christ, that means this man had the mind of Christ also. Now, I do not know what this does for you. But for me, this sort of sends chills up and down my spine. It makes my hair, you know, feel like it's standing on ends. When I read here, in the first century in the Roman Empire, have you ever read very much about that Roman Empire of the first century? That empire of Caesar Augustus? That empire that moved out and took over the world? And that the law of Rome became supreme everywhere? and that there was no mercy shown anyone, but there was law and order everywhere. Then there went out this little man, Paul the Apostle, and those that were with him and like-minded with him, 
And they preached a gospel where there was a God of the universe who through a redemption that he had wrought on a Roman cross had provided mercy for mankind. I want to tell you, multitudes turn to the Lord Jesus in that day. Now I see walking down the streets of Rome, I see a man that's been in chains. I see a man that's chained to a soldier. His name is Paul the Apostle. What's he doing? Well, he's got the mind of Christ, and he's rejoicing in the Lord. And I see a young preacher, Timothy, fine young man walking down in that pagan city. You say you can't live for Christ today, my friend. Look at Timothy. He did pretty well. He had the mind of Christ. And then I take a look at the Epaphroditus, a faithful pastor, way up yonder in Philippi. It was a Roman colony, but there was this pagan, heathen city, and he has the mind of Christ. And I say to Vernon McGee, let's get out today and have the mind of Christ, and don't offer excuses in these days in which we are living.